Man. Let's take a moment to just pause and pray. God, thank you for that rich word. It's just uh, so much within it, God, that um, I know I can just speak from where I stand, energizes me, and I know I can feel that in this room, God. There is so much power in your word, and we thank you for that. Um, thank you for the places where those specific words are touching each of our hearts, um, the heart of our community, um, as we just sit in it, God. We invite you, Spirit, to, uh, to continue to show us uh, how to be faithful where you've put us and also to be courageous, to go beyond even just the places we are to the places you call us to go and be. Um, thank you that we get to do this listening in community, God, that you're shaping us as a people. Um, and so there are even opportunities this morning as we connect with each other to discover Um, ways in which we might be on mission with you and the Spirit. So we open this time to you, God, and we ask you to speak. In Christ's name, amen. Well, um, on August 19th of 2015, I I came across this convocation speech by the Dean of Duke University, Steve Nowicki. I think that's how you say his name. And he was giving this convocation speech to the class of 2019, so the class that's going to be graduating in just like 10 weeks. And the convocation speech, you can find it online, is called Question Authority. Um, And the context for it, I'm going to read a little bit of it. He was cleaning out a junk drawer in his house and um, came across this little yellow button, kind of a lapel button, um, about the size of a dollar coin, and um, had two words written on it, Question Authority. So he, here's what he said. Members of the so-called baby boom generation like me or maybe even your parents or other older family members might remember this slogan. They may even remember this particular button. You see, when I went to college, question authority served as a kind of generational mantra. In fact, there's even a Wikipedia t- article titled Question Authority in which you can read, and he quotes, the slogan became arguably the most accepted form of ideology among baby boomers. And let me tell you, these buttons were everywhere when I went to college. And why not? When I was in high school, the Vietnam War was still raging, tearing our nation apart. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, and then just two months later, Robert F. Kennedy. The economy was stagnating, unemployment was rising, race riots were raging in our major cities. The year I went to college, Richard Nixon resigned as president, disgraced by the criminal activity of the Watergate scandal. It's no wonder that when I went to college, we embraced this slogan, Question Authority. So when I refound my question authority button a few weeks ago, I couldn't help but wonder about the quirk of fate that brought it back to my attention just then, just as I was preparing to greet you, the class of 2019. Now, like then, governments seem broken. Now, like then, injustice and racism are sparking protests and even violence across our country. Now, like then, many parts of our world are torn apart by social strife, by economic disparity, by war. And I wondered, half seriously, if this button had found its way back to me, kind of like the ring and Lord of the Rings, (laughs) because it somehow knew that it was going to come back into style. Truth be told, question authority seems like it might be as good a mantra for your generation as it was mine. Actually, I'll go farther than that, he says. Whether or not you adopt these two specific words as a rallying cry, whether or not these yellow buttons come back into fashion, I suggest that one of the most important things you can do with your life is cultivate the habit of questioning authority. And then he goes on, can read the speech, and he talks about what he means by that, because obviously for the dean to tell his students that are coming in, question authority, 
kind of a bad idea because, you know, they're going to not go to class and maybe, like, you know, kick him out or whatever. But so he talks about what he means by that. But the reason why that matters, I think, as we kind of telescope in on chapter 15 of Romans, or the first half, I should say, is it, it's really interesting to me. I've been looking at Romans kind of in this broad view for a number of weeks now that if you look at Romans 23 times in the first 13 chapters of Romans, um, Paul uses the title Lord to describe Jesus. And then 12 more times in just chapters 14 and 15. So 35 times in the book of Romans, Jesus is described as Lord. It's really uh, striking. And in each case, what we see Paul doing is is creating this sort of scaffolding for the Christian life uh, with lordship of Jesus as as the sort of thing that frames it, saying it's only as we understand Jesus as Lord that we'll understand him at all. He's primarily Lord. And, and this was a profession that, that was then and, and is today, I should say, a very subversive profession. It's sort of nothing short of really saying question authority. Because um, then in the Roman world, the first century, just to put this in context, Caesar was literally venerated as Lord. He demanded fealty in the realms that he ruled, not just politically, but also religiously. There was emperor worship in that day. So all over the empire, localized in form in various places, but, but always intense, aimed at ensuring devotion from his subjects. In ancient media, if you dig up, like if you go online, you can find coins, pottery, poetry. All of them say that they, they venerate the emperor, Caesar, Herod, as God and as mediator before the gods. And so some inscriptions have been found with statements like this, Emperor Augustus Caesar, God and Lord, or Nero, the Lord of the whole world. So this picture, just think of this the picture of what it would look like as a Roman citizen, like Paul, to stand in downtown Rome announcing that a Jewish carpenter from a little small town called Nazareth, a rabbi, put to death by the Roman governor, is now the king of kings and the lord of lords. To some, it would sound like just complete tomfoolery, like you're just out to lunch, you have no idea. Others, naive. But to Paul and, his, and Christ's followers of the day, Peter, John, James, they were marked as dissidents, political dissidents, and insurrectionists. As N.T. Wright says, to come to Rome with the gospel of Jesus, to announce someone else's ascension to the world's throne, was like to put on a red coat, <laughs> to walk into a field with a potentially angry bull. So the lordship of Jesus was not just this doctrinal formula. He's not, Paul's not just giving another doctrine to you, and you just pray it. And now you've got a secret ticket. <laughs> but something, it's something that pervaded the witness, the work, the worship of the early church. And, and by declaring Jesus as Lord, not only of the Christian community, but over the whole Roman world, the cosmos, Paul is like picking a fight. <laughs> He's saying, and not just with Caesar, but, he, but confronting the powers and the principalities of his day that are seeking to divide the Christian community, destroying the lives of those that don't even follow Christ, destroying the work of Christ on the cross. And so at the end of the day, Christ's lordship, I think it reminds us that Christianity is not about being nice to people. We're not here to learn how to be nice. It's not even learning, learning how to become better people. It's not about moral conformity or reform. It's about being subversive people. We're called to subversion, like question authority. And we're subversive, listen to this, because we're unflinchingly submissive. We are submissive to the kingdom, cause, and message of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. People who will not bend their knee to the lords of our age. People who, by their actions, their words, tell forth the love of Lord Jesus. People who are pointing to the Lord. People who are redeemed by our past failures because of the Lord. Who offer mercy to the broken because of the Lord. 
who, who are able to reconcile enemies because of the Lord. The Lord offers good news of great joy to all people. This is what Jesus is about. And so it has profound implications, Jesus' lordship. And it's therefore, I think, worthwhile to think about what proclaiming Jesus as Lord means for us today. And so we're going to do that. And with respect to Romans 15, we're going to look at several implications of Christ's lordship on our relationships. It's really, if you heard that, it's really a passage about relationships. And so I want to, in our daily living, so I want to focus on just a few things. How Christ is Lord affects a few things. And I didn't fill in the outline because this came to me a little bit late, like yesterday. Um, but how Christ is Lord, so if you're taking out a note and you have a bulletin and it's just a little blank, you can fill this in. But if you're taking it on a phone or a, a notebook, we're going to look at these three things. How Christ is Lord shapes the posture we stand in, how Christ is Lord transforms the mindset we relate with, and how Christ is Lord pr- provides a wellspring from which to witness, okay? So shapes the posture we stand in, transforms the mindset we relate with, and provides a wellspring from which to witness. And I'll repeat those as we go, okay? So first, how Christ as Lord shapes the posture we stand in. This is in the first three verses of chapter 15. Let me give you a little context, context to help set the stage here. If you look at chapter 15, scholars actually argue these first three verses are kind of a continuation of chapter 14, um, where Paul has been arguing or, or casting a vision, so to speak, of, uh, for a united body of Christ. Richard spoke toward this, our senior pastor, last Sunday. Um, and many of you watched that video, I think. And, and what Richard said is that, see, Paul is, is, is writing at a time when the Roman Empire, like I said, the ruler is saying, hey, Caesar's Lord, I'm the emperor, which means I have the power to unite all people. You know, the Pax Romana. And, and so a, a culturally diverse uh, empire, various tribes, tongues, nations, very, very diverse. But I do that by virtue of my military strength, my economic might, um, my political influence, my supernatural power, okay? I, get to, I unite you that way. He de- so he demands people are, un- are united. And so when Paul comes in 35 times and said, no, Jesus is Lord, and, and he, he's really saying that Jesus has a more powerful capacity to unite even than Caesar, a more powerful lordship, and he can hold together even a more diverse community of people uh, without resorting to violence, coercion, power plays. I mean, as his only power, he, gave, he, he lacks all power according to the, the sort of power structures of the world. His only power is the power he expresses of, through, through the cross of love, of self-serving love. That's the binding element of Christ's lordship. That's the thing that's, that can draw together and unite all people. And that's the vision, the, the unified body of Christ. But the reality is, as we get into first, uh, chapter 15, that this in the first century of, of Rome, the church is dividing up. It's breaking up. And we have 20,000-some denominations today. I mean, it, it started then. And, and they're dividing into at least two groups, as you read chapter 14 and 15, the so-called weak and the so-called strong. Um, and both love God or committed to God. I mean, it, both believe that Jesus is Lord, I believe, and yet they can't enjoy fellowship with each other because they, they both hold these central, these issues that are so dear to them, they cannot let go of those things, the things that they think are central to the gospel. And so that's kind of the context of Romans 14 and 15. And so Paul begins Romans 15 by saying this, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. And so in this instance, by the way, the strong are the Gentiles within this community. It's, like I said, it's a diverse community who are freely enjoying all foods. They're not being prohibited by sort of kosher foods. 
And they're also ignoring the Jewish festivals that had been brought into Christianity, like Sabbath and things like that. Um, they're saying, well, we don't need to do those things. And the weak are the Jewish converts to Christianity, many of whom have come back or left Jerusalem and come to Rome. They converted to Christianity. They still follow the Torah laws. They, so they, they can't eat any food that's not kosher. Um, and they still feel an obligation to observe all these cultural holidays and rituals that you even see Jesus observing, you know? And so Paul's saying there, there are still some things to work out <laughs> in this community of faith, like what day you're going to worship on, what food you can eat. Aries a strong disagreement, but don't divide up. Don't stop gathering. Instead, remain united because this is what Jesus' final prayer was to his, for his church, his most powerful and lasting testimony. And therefore, Paul puts the burden of building that unity, of keeping the church together on the strong. We who are strong ought to bear, carry the, with the feelings of the weak, okay? And by doing so, he's not excusing the weak. Hear this. He's just simply saying that the strong get to set the tone. In other words, Paul is, is not calling the strong, to, he's not saying just tolerate the weak, just put up with their scruples. Uh, he's telling them that precisely because they understand the, the freedom that we all have in Christ, it's for freedom, Paul says, that Christ has set us free. They're going to need to be the one to cast that vision, vision for freedom, to this new community of faith. They have a responsibility for that, that vision, to bear with the failings of the weak. There's actually this great commentary on the Book of Romans I've been reading throughout this series by a guy named Douglas Moo. He's a professor at Wheaton College, and I'm not recommending it because it's very, very long. I think it's like 1,000 pages, very technical. It's about 6 pounds, 10 pounds, lots of scholarship, but this is what I do. So uh, it's interesting. But he says that when Paul calls the strong to bear with the weak, that's just this remarkable, remarkable statement because what he says is, This word, he observed, this word literally means to bear the burden of somebody else. So picture you're going on a backpacking trip and your friend's just not keeping pace with you rather than saying, uh, well, maybe you should just stay here and I'll go on or uh, maybe we should just go back. You actually carry both backpacks. (laughs) That's who you are and you do it. So it means to enter in under somebody else's uh, load, their, their weight, to carry it and then to continue in a journey together. And so, so Moo says that should really be, it, the verse should really be translated, the strong ought to bear or shoulder the burdens of the weak. That's how you should really translate it. And that's actually, a, actually an echo of what Jesus earlier said in Matthew 11, like, come to me, all you who are weary, all you who are weak, <laughs> and I am burdened, and I'll give you rest. I'll carry your load. So that's what this means. It, what it means to enter under the burden of uh, the weak, to, to, to carry the weaknesses of the weak, to get under those, is, is it can mean you're supposed to become weak, like just kind of, you know, move toward that, just do whatever, it, you know, it, it's all relative, you know, just do whatever. It can't mean you're supposed to fall into the errors and just tolerate each other, uh, just sing kumbaya, hold hands. It just can't mean that, right? It has to mean, in as much as Jesus is the one who models this to us, and he beckons us, come to me, walk with me, work with me, keep company with me. Uh, the, the burden bearing is about being with people. It's witness. So we're called as Christ followers into relationships with whom, with whom we, we strongly disagree and offer. This is why I love that message translation, offer to bear the burden. Uh, though, this is what the message says. Those of us who are strong and able in the faith need to step in, lend a hand to those who are faltering, and not just do what's most convenient for us. Strength is for service, not status. Each one of us 
needs to look to the, after the good of the people around us and ask ourselves one question, how can I help? How can I help? That's the question. As my friend Sean up front here says, that's filthy. I love that because like, to look at each other and go, how can I help you? And that's a gospel question, to bear the weaknesses of the weak. It just means to personally, intimately enter into a relationship in which your chief aim, your number one aim, is to serve the other, to serve. So strength is for service. Uh, interestingly, Paul uses that same verb, to bear with the burdens of the weak, in Galatians 6, where he urges believers to carry one another's burdens. And in this way, he says in Galatians, fulfill the law of Christ, which was to love one another, body, soul, spirit. So by serving somebody, how can I help you? You're fulfilling the most important commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. I, that's beautiful. Paul's, you're not just helping somebody across the street. You're not just a Boy Scout or Girl Scout. You are fulfilling the law of love. And Jesus said, that's the most important, that's the reason you were created. Uh, Paul's, so Paul's urging the strong not just to put up or tolerate with those they disagree with, uh, he's exhorting the strong to willingly and lovingly assume for themselves the burdens of these weak people, whatever those are, and whatever those were then, whatever they are today. Like today, this might look like, hey, you know somebody who's got a deep sense that they're never good enough. It's never going to be good enough. And you can carry that with them, a burden of shame, an inability to rest, um, a constant need to be perfect and perform. Paul's saying sympathetically, enter into their lives Understand their point of view. They're coming from a, a deep conviction or maybe a deep uh, woundedness or just that they don't know what they're even dealing with. Carry that with them because it's, that burden is just too heavy to bear alone. And, and so as we transition to this, the second thing here, very important this calling because you're going, great, I'd love to do that. How? <laughs> Paul gives, he tells us here in verse three where we get the energy to, to kind of bear each other's burdens. So uh, he says in verse 3, even Christ did not please himself, but as it's written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. And uh, right there, Paul's quoting one of the Psalms, Psalm 69.9, which is this sort of prophetic psalm about Jesus as a way of just saying that as the strong bend down to help the weak, they replay the humility of Christ who bent down to help us all. So do you know where your energy comes from? To serve and to love? It comes straight from Jesus, who died on the cross. We'll, we'll come to that during Lent and, and, and on Good Friday, but every time we gather, our fo- we reasonably keep a cross, I know it's tucked in the corner, is to remember that, that our calling in life is to, is to replay the humility of Christ in each other's lives. Um, there's a beautiful illustration of this, actually, in one of C.S. Lewis's books uh, that I've always loved. He says, in, in the Christian story, where he's talking about the incarnation, he says, God descended to reascend. He comes down, down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down the very roots and the seabed of nature that he created. He goes down to come back up again, to bring the ruined world up with him. And then he goes on, he says, one has this picture of a strong man or woman stooping lower and lower and lower to get himself underneath some great and complicated burden. He must stoop or she must stoop in order to lift. Always lift with your legs, not your back, by the way. He must always, almost disappear under the load before it incredibly straightens his back, or he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with a whole mass swing on his shoulders. We are replaying that narrative when we serve each other. 
And it's a beautiful picture of what Christ did for us. And he, he invites and empowers us and energizes us to do in relationship to each other. A, a death to preference that leads to new life for whom we die. That's the power of the gospel. Like we are given strength to love others with love beyond the world. I mean, that's just, I could stop right there, but I won't. <laughs> I got one more thing and then a half, real quick. So we're given strength to serve. It's the posture we're, we're called to stand in. Here's the second thing, that we're given by the Lordship of Jesus uh, a transformed mindset. Trans- he transforms the mindsets we relate with. And this is in kind of the middle of this passage, uh, verses 5 to 7. Let me read those. I think I have the NIV here. So we have the message. This is a little different. This is what Paul says. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ had And so that with one mind, one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So a a lot is being written today about mindset. Some of you are reading this stuff. Uh, Angela Duckworth, she has that book, Grit. Carol Dweck has one called Mindset. These are social psychologists. Uh, They're writing and speaking. You can watch TED Talks. This is stuff I just love. Uh, uh, About the importance of mindset on learning, on relationships, on growth in education. Um, in particular, this, there's this uh, focus in their work on growth mindset and fixed mindset. How many of you guys are kind of with me? Some of you, yeah, a lot of you are. And I've talked about this before, where I've noted that the fixed mindset is to live with this core belief that you just, you can't do certain things because of who you are. Like you've been, you have a fixed set of abilities, intelligences, capacities, and they, they will only allow you to go so far in life. Uh, so you have like this glass ceiling above you, and you'll never get through it. You have a, a, you have a, ha- a hand you've been dealt, and that's it. You don't get to trade those cards in. That's it. You are, that's, that's your hand. And that's what you have to play the so-called game of life with. That's the fixed mindset. And then the growth mindset, in contrast, uh, that Dweck and others talk about, is that talent, intelligence, ability are not gifts that were given. They are not gifts that were given. Uh, or capacities that were dealt. They are things that we cultivate through effort, repetition, and constant work, and that we can grow in, always. You can always grow. Here's what Dweck says in an Atlantic Monthly a while back. She said that learning something new, something hard, sticking to things, that's how you get smarter. That's how you grow. Setbacks and feedback aren't about your abilities. Failure is not about your abilities. They're information that can help you learn. With the growth mindset, uh, you don't necessarily think that there's not, no such thing as, you don't think there's no such thing as talent, that everybody's the same, but you believe that everyone can develop unique and extraordinary ability through work, strategy, and lots and lots of help. That's the growth mindset. And so that's a little rabbit trail, uh, <laughs> because I love that stuff and I geek out on it. And the question for today is, which is relevant for the conversation we're in, what's the mindset that comes as a result of Jesus' lordship? There's growth, there's fix, what's our mindset? Paul tells us, verse 5, it's the mindset of togetherness. And I'm just painfully aware, the second I say that, is like, there's like, the air goes out of the room, because let's talk more about that growth mindset. That's really interesting. Togetherness, it's like, it doesn't move the needle for us, especially as you talk about um, being subversive. It's like the stuff of a campfire. Like, it's good with s'mores, but, and I like s'mores, but togetherness it just lacks substance. I mean, so do s'mores, by the way. It, you know, you just make you sick if you eat too many. But when you want to talk about living subversively, what is togetherness really going to do for us? Um, 
And so what Paul, you know, I think he's getting at is when we have the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ had, uh, he's saying there's something deeper than just kind of holding hands, singing kumbaya. There's something much bigger than that. And I want to make a couple observations about what he says here that I think will move us forward. So the first one is, it's actually very significant that the phrase, when he says, have the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ had, that same phrase, same wording, is used all over Paul's letters. I mean, I, I looked them up. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 1, 2 Corinthians 13, Ephesians 4, Philippians 2, you know that Christ hymn. You're all very familiar with Colossians 3. And then Peter picks it up, 1 Peter 3. All over the place, be of the same mind, which means to agree, to cherish the same views, be harmonious, okay? That's kind of the composite picture. What's more interesting to me, though, as you look at the beyond the New Testament usage of the word, is there's a couple of powerful usages and, and examples of it in the Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is called the, the Septuagint. One in particular that I want to highlight in First, or First Chronicles 12, which describes this time when David, he's on the run uh, from Saul. If you remember this story, Saul's uh, kind of banished him. Uh, he doesn't, Saul feels threatened by David, doesn't want him to become king. Um, and so now Saul's chasing him. David's hiding in caves and, you know, he's all over the place. Remember these stories? And he's surrounded by a group of men. It's, they're called David's mighty men. You can read this in First Chronicles 12. Um, they join with David. They help him against all the raiding bands of Saul. They fight with him against Saul and his armies. And it says in First Chronicles 12, 38, they're fully determined of one mind, there's the phrase, to make David their king. Of one mind. They, there's no dissension in, their, in their, their ranks. And in that sense, when you look at it from that perspective, togetherness, unity, having the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had toward us is not a, a quaint theological concept. It's not just holding hands. Sing, like I said, sing kumbaya. It, to be together and united means to be engaged in the same fight to be committed to the same purpose, to stand on the same field of battle, because Christianity, as C.S. Lewis has said somewhere, is, is a fighting religion. Uh, it's a fight, whether that's a fight against the powers and principalities of our day, broken systems, racism, inequality, or the fight that we're all engaged in every day against the lies the enemy tells us about ourselves, that you're not good enough. You're never going to make it. You have no future. You have too much in your past. You can't be a person of great faith and great courage. The Lord gives us one mind that we might together fight the battles before us for life by declaring the truth of God's love to each other's hearts and into a world that desperately needs to hear the message of Christ's love. By just saying in the presence of each other, in our darkest moments, you are not alone. You're never alone. I'm with you. God is with you. And because God's with you, he's for you. And because he's for you, who can stand against us? And so whatever you're facing, because we're all facing something right now, whatever you're fighting, whether it's doubt, unbelief, a loss of hope, loneliness, anger, confusion, whatever you're facing, friends, I want you to look around right now. Just look around for a moment. I know this is a little uncomfortable, but please do it. You don't need to look at me now, because you have been. Thank you for your attention. <laughs> you are in the body of Christ right now. You are not alone. You may feel like you're alone because you're sitting alone. <laughs> you are not alone. God is for you. God is with you. Nothing can stand against you. Christianity is a fight. That's the first aspect of this new mindset that we've been given in Christ. Here's the second. 
sort of word picture of togetherness. It's in verse 7. So uh, Paul says, accept one another just as Christ accepted you. So he's, he's offering a word picture of what it looks like to be of the same mind. Other translations put that little verse, receive one another as Christ received you. Uh, the best, I think, is, is the ESV, which is welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. I love that, that idea of welcome, because it, it really does demonstrate the depth into which we're called to go into relationship with each other. That, I mean, just think of welcoming somebody into your life, our, our, your home, your family. I mean, the notion of gospel hospitality is not about Martha Stewart and a perfect table. It's about opening your door to a stranger and saying, come on in. There's more than enough for you. Um, and I'm actually grateful in this season of my life to have a neighborhood that I get to live in where that's happening almost every day. <laughs> Some days I wish, well, I love you guys, all of you who are in my neighborhood. Some days you're like, man, I want privacy right now. I, I don't want your kids in my house, because I know my, but I know my kids are in their house all the time because they're never in my house. <laughs> and I think about that. I'm like, wow, what a utopian view, right, to have our kids just running around and in each other's homes. And a lot of you have this. But it's not. That's exactly what Christ has called us toward, to welcome each other. This is why we continue to try and and build these neighborhood groups. Because when every person in this church to experience the welcome of God in relationship, in the neighborhood they've been put. So I guess if you don't, this is a little side note, if you don't have that, where you live, you feel isolated in your neighborhood, please talk to me or Silas. I mean, you might have to start it. It's not ready-made. It's not a cookie cutter. But this is exactly what God's called us toward is to be that kind of a people beyond this Sunday morning experience, okay? Um, but it goes further than that, real quick. It's further, more than just inviting neighbors over for dinner um, and just having your kids play together, much, much deeper. There's a calling in here. So the, the word that Paul uses for welcome is this image of pressing other people into your heart. And the best picture I can give you for this is, uh, where did it go? Ah, where are you, Tim? <laughs> you're laughing, is thanks to our friends at Starburst. The reason I said, Tim, is I drop one of these on the ground, so you can't eat it. But um, Starburst are not my favorite candy. But I thought of this. How many of you like, like Starburst? You like the raspberry? It's the best. But whenever you get those three packs, there's never raspberry in them. So I got cherry, orange, and lemon. And I learned this trick from a friend of mine once that you, well, shoot, these are really cold. Hold on. What you should do is you kind of squeeze them together. Yeah, there we go. Keep them in your pocket for a little while first. That's why I had my pocket. Warm them up. Roll it up. Preferably wash your hands. Really good. You do this enough, and it creates this little ball. Do it long enough, it's going to mix the colors up. And um, what you have after you do that is this new candy experience. So this now is no longer that awful cough syrup cherry. This is like... Cherry lemonade with a little orange zest on top. It's actually quite good. <laughs> Which is a picture, I think, of what Paul's in. I'm not going to be able to talk. You're not recording this. It's a picture, I think, of what Paul's inviting us into. When we accept others, we welcome them wholly as Christ welcomed us. We become one with them. We have our lives pressed into each other's lives. That's what the word means, to be pressed in to each other. And it gets messy. My hand's all sticky right now. It's not perfect. Sometimes there's no raspberry. Um, 
But it's exactly what Christ has called us into and what his loving lordship creates, a community of people whose hearts are so open to each other that despite our differences from each other, that we now have the capacity to see each other through the eyes of Christ, a seeing that enables us to bless each other, delight in each other, serve each other. This is what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 5, that we, from now, we don't regard anyone from a human point of view. In other words, Paul's saying, when he sees people, when you see people around you, you're seeing beyond the present. You see what they're becoming, what they can become. You have hope for their future. And notice in this passage, he includes endurance. But because of endurance, he, he knows that where they are isn't where they're called to go, so he keeps showing up to contribute to that process of becoming, being pressed into each other's lives, okay? Togetherness. This is a community. This, we're called to this community of faith of continually shaping and creating not that, but something beyond that, a community where there's real healing, genuine reconciliation, mercy for the broken, invitation for the lost. That's what togetherness is about, radical welcome, okay? So we've been given this mindset to relate to each other with, uh, a posture to stand in, a mindset, and here's the last thing, really quickly. Um, the Lordship of Jesus provides a wellspring from which to witness. And this is in verse 13 where Paul says, may the God of hope fill you with joy. It may fill you with peace as you trust in him so you might overflow by the power of the spirit with hope. That's my benediction. I mean, if you've been around our church for any length of time, you've heard me say that many Sundays. I don't even know why. (laughs) I just, I must have been in a season. It was back in Pennsylvania where I had my first call to a church out there where I needed to understand hope, I'm guessing. I don't really remember exactly why out of you know, the benediction, the ironic benediction in Numbers. There's many benedictions in the Bible. I must have needed to, to understand peace and the power of the Spirit. Um, I've often thought about what I would say if I ever preached that verse, and I'm preaching it today. <laughs> like, I've never preached this. I just offer it as a benediction to you. And interestingly, as I thought about that this week, there's not much in there that I need to say. There's a lot that could be said. It just seems to be one of those verses in the Bible that's so rich with color and meaning that it just drew me in. And maybe it draws you in. I've seen many of you. I just have the privilege of standing here. When I say it, close your eyes and receive it. I do want to offer one observation, though, to send you with. And here's, here's this observation. Notice, it doesn't say that uh, hope doesn't fill you because you put your trust in something. This is so critical, to this, this verse. I don't want you to miss this. Hope will only fill you, can only fill you as you put your trust in someone. May the God of hope fill you with joy, fill you with peace as you trust in him. Hope is a byproduct of trust. You trust in Jesus. We as followers of Christ cannot, must not put our trust in, in, in things. We, we, in, it would be expected to be filled with hope. We can't hope in a certain future or an outcome whatever that outcome you, you need right now is. You can't hope that the people that God has put you in a relationship with are, are going to be perfect and, and meet all your needs, whether that's your, your spouse, your kids, your friends, your neighbors. Uh, though they may be incredible, <laughs> you can't put your hope in them. You can't put your hope in your financial security. Markets go and they come, and, and I see those commercials where you just keep investing and keep saving, and you're going to have a future. You put your hope in that, 
you will be disappointed. You can't put your hope in your career trajectory. You know, just keep climbing, keep going, keep working. You can't certainly put your hope in our political candidates and their promises. None of these can be the basis of biblical hope, Paul says. Hope, according to Scripture, is a byproduct only and ever of trust in God. Put your trust in God, Paul says, and that will fill you with hope. And there's portraits all over the Gospels of people who did this, who put their trust, they're just, that's all they had to do. They could put their trust in nothing but God. There's this woman that a friend was telling me about, the Syrophoenician in, in the Gospel of Matthew, who this, in this last-ditch effort, gesture of trust, falls at Jesus' knees. He calls her a dog. And she falls at his knees because her, sister, her daughter is sick, begs him to heal her daughter. And Jesus tells her, remember this? Today your daughter's healed because of your faith. <laughs> You're trusting God. She came as an, and she became an agent of hope for her daughter because she trusted in nothing but Jesus. There's the woman at the well who is this, in this gesture of vulnerability, vulnerable trust, spends an entire afternoon with Jesus, probably shouldn't have been there, has this deep conversation with Jesus about her whole life, opens her life to him, trusts him with information about her, her story, shares her pain, shares her loneliness, shares her shame, which causes Jesus to fill her with what? Living water, hope, that becomes this contagion for her entire community. She goes to her community, and remember what she says to her community? Come and see the man who told me everything. Everything about me, everything that's true, revealed to me even secrets, I think, about the universe. I mean, he told me everything. There's Peter, who asked Jesus at one point, or who was asked by Jesus at one point, hey, everybody's left. Just me and you now, Peter. You're going to leave too? And remember what Peter says to Jesus? Where would I go? I have no seminary degree. I left my family. My father hates me. I'm actually adding words to Peter's mouth, but I'm, you know, I left my job. I've left everything for you, Jesus. Where else would I go? He's desperate for Jesus. He's got, he's put his absolute trust in God. He left it all for God. A trust that later, only later, leads to this bold hope. In Acts 2, you look at this sermon that Peter preaches. It says that the sermon he preaches cuts to the hearts of thousands of people who come to Peter and say, what should we do now? And they all get saved. Hope is always contagious when it's put in its rightful place in God. He's the Lord of our relationships. He's the Lord of your future. He's the Lord of your family, your finances, our politics, broken systems. The promise is when you put your trust in God, hope will spread like a wildfire. It'll spread. The promise of the gospel is that we'll become wellsprings of hope just rushing through our communities. And that's the kind of church I want to be. So let's put our hope in God. Where are you putting your hope today? Think about your life. Or maybe I should ask, are you putting your hope in God? What are you facing right now? Where is your hope placed? That's the invitation to come to God this morning with your desperation, your questions, your fears, your dreams, your family, your future, and just say, God, you're all I have. You're all I need. I trust in you. I trust in you. So I want to do that with you, though. Um, I want to invite our worship team back up. And we're going to respond. I, I, I just want to invite us to have a posture of trust this morning. For some of you, move this out of the way, that might look like um, just sitting 
with your hands up where, you're, where you are. Some of you, that might mean you need to get in a different position. You might need to stand and feel free to raise your hands. You might want to kneel down. That's totally fine. We have a little space up here. Um, some of you might need somebody to pray with. Like I said, you looked around. The body of Christ is all around you. We do have a prayer team, but pray together. And this is an opportunity in the midst of God's people to say, God, I trust in you. I trust in you. Let's take a moment to pray. Jesus, thank you that you're, uh, you're here with us. That your spirit is alive in this room. Let your loving lordship over our lives and our community um, creates a space where grace and truth can be experienced together as one. So God, for those of us that need to lean in the direction of grace where we need to hear the message from you, Spirit, that uh, there's nothing we could do to make you love us less. Would we hear that over our hearts today and trust in you? God, where there's untruth in our lives, where some of us need to lean in the direction of truth and hear uh, you speak into our lives, speak words of identity and truth about what we're doing with our lives, where we're going in our lives, who we are, Help us to lean in that direction, God. Thank you that this space is a space of safety and refuge for us to meet with you and commune. So we worship you, Lord. We trust in you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.